It's good to see everybody uh, tonight. As we get started, uh, one, I just want to praise God for our worship team that killed it yesterday during our worship. Now let's give it up for them. If you were not here uh, last night, our worship team was able to put together a magnificent time of worship. We were able to just come to this place. We didn't have any chairs out. Folks was running around, and it was just a glorious time just to enjoy God. So we just praise God for them and the leadership that put it together. We are continuing our series on love and the radical love of God. And as we've done this series, it's been, a, it's been good for us to really check ourselves and think about how we're aligned as a church. If this is our primary goal, to love God and to love others. You know, as a church with so many singles, one of the things that we have to wrestle with is people are figuring out marriage, right? Like how to get in that space. And oftentimes, as a couple, people just ask us, like, how did we hook up? Like, how did you and your wife get together? Like, tell me the story. I Prayerfully, it can be the pattern that makes, you know, room for me. But how did you get together, praise the Lord? And for people, they're wondering that. They're wondering, what's the story? And it's funny because when couples tell the story, you know, some, one of them exaggerates, you know, one of them makes it seem like you were totally going after me and the other person's like, well, it wasn't quite like that. Like, they always nudge each other. Check it out after this church, you know, ask them how they got together. Somebody's going to lie, right? That's just what they do. That's just what couples do. How'd you and the Lord get together? How'd y'all hook up? What was it like when you came to know the Lord and you got serious with your relationship with God. Like, what, were the, what was the situation like? Like, was he pursuing you? You were pursuing him? And like, what was it like? Because it's a, of the utmost importance that when we tell the story of who we are and how we got together with God, it says so much about us and it says so much about the Lord himself. In this series, we've broken down basically the way that we understand love and the way that we understand connection and relationship. And we've said that there are three essential buckets to understanding love, right? In this first bucket, that is reciprocal love. That is when someone loves that which is already lovely. The second bucket, though, is that is of benevolent love. And that's when you love someone or something that is lowly someone in need of compassion, someone that is hurting. Excuse me. And then we said benevolent love. And benevolent love, or rather uh, radical love. Radical love is when you love the undeserving. Someone who hasn't done anything that would cause you to naturally feel compassionate for them or feel as if they had anything valuable to offer you. And so we've looked at different ways that people are able to define love. And so what we did last week, and it's been such a blessing and so encouraging, is that we did a a money line. We did a reverse offering, and we had one line that had $10 bills, and we had another line that had $20 bills. And then we said people who are looking for an opportunity for benevolent love will give you $10, and some people are trying to do something radical will give you $20, And some people got 10, some people got 20. Didn't really matter which line you went into, but we wanted you to go out into the world and show the world that God was a loving God. 
And through the stories that we've heard back, people posted on, on the Facebook community page what they did with that money that we offered them. Some people talked about they reconciled with a friend or family member that they hadn't spoken with for quite some time. Other people talked about they were on the train and they ran into someone and all of a sudden, they, somebody just walked up to them and said, hey, can I get $10? And they were like, yes, I have $10 for you. Oh my gosh. But people were looking for opportunity to bless others. And I pray that tonight, if you still have one of those stories, feel free, again, to post it on the community page. And I understand that if it's radical love, if there's tension with somebody, if there's someone who's broken your heart, you may not want to post that, but you can share that with one of the pastors. We just want to be encouraged with what God is doing in our midst. But it was really cool because people were walking around with money like, I got to do something with this money. I don't want to pay off my Netflix bill, praise God. I don't want to get lunch for myself. I got to do something with this money. But that was only a word picture of how we should perceive love. That we've been given this great love from God and we feel as if we ought to offer it to other people. It's because of the love of God that we know that God has blessed us. Now you cannot give what you do not have, but when you are given something of great wealth and of great worth, it's intention. We knew that last week, the intention was to offer it to someone else. R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, it is the effectual love of God that first changes our hearts in order to make us capable of love, and it is his example of love that reminds us again and again our need to love other people. So when we got that money, we thought to ourselves, I've got to do something with this, but realize that's the intention of God's love. We should be having this burden, I've got to do something with this. First John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. He gave us a great agape love, a sacrificial love that we want to give to other people. Church, this is so important for us to be able to model an example, particularly where we're at in the state of our country and where we're at even in our church. Because it is very easy for a church to slip into this mentality that love is not our highest ethic or our goal. Moreover, in the book that we've been looking through, in the book of 1 Corinthians, they had lost the value of love because the world had superimposed itself and they were using Greek philosophy and Greek thinking. And because of that, they were lifting up certain teachers and that was causing factions and divisions and hierarchy in the church. There wasn't a loving community. They were a divided community. They were sectioning themselves off based upon their preferences. And Paul, in the passage we're going to look at today, was hoping and praying that by reminding them of who they were and how they came to Christ, that would break the yoke of supremacy, break the yoke of hierarchy. And, and, and when I say this, this idea of trying to be elite, I don't mean this just because we're Christians. I mean, this is in all of our DNA, and we will use anything. We talked about this last week. We will use anything to feel better than someone else. We, we naturally want leverage over people. It's part of how we're made in our sinful state. And we always want power, you know, you, and, and it's blinding. You think about how the country was started the Declaration of, of, uh, Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson. Look what this dude wrote. 
He wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are are endowed by the creator with a certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He wrote these words down and simultaneously had 607 slaves. So for his slaves, they did not have those unalienable rights. And it took hundreds of years in order for African-Americans to get these rights, not to mention what women went through in this country as well. And so it's blinding, y'all. Elitism, hierarchy, leverage, power, it's blinding. And it's part of the way that we operate with one another naturally. And so what was happening in the church, 1 Corinthians 1 and 12, they were saying, what I am saying, or Paul wrote, what I am saying is one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. And they were using all different forms. We talked about last week how Paul had started the church. And because Paul had started the church, those folks were like, hey, I'm loyal to Paul. But others were saying, man, Apollos, he's such a dynamic communicator. I am loyal. I follow Apollos. Others are saying, Cephas, I see him over there, over in Jerusalem. I watched one of his sermons on YouTube. I think he's dope. I love that dude, Cephas. And then people were saying, I am of Christ. And there's always an I am of Christ crowd because they think they're better than other people because they memorize some verses. And folks go out to drink. They're like, I don't drink because I'm blessed and I'm highly favored and all this other stuff, right? So there's always these factions. And what I'm trying to tell you is this. We will use anything to gain leverage over people, money, power, color, race, and we will use Jesus. And it is blinding. And it was blinding the Corinthians. And it was blinding, it's been blinding in our country. And do not think based upon diversity, do not think based upon age, do not think based upon the age of our church that in no way we will not create hierarchy in here either. I was, I was preaching at a church one time, and uh, they, they, they were saying, you know, we're a come-as-you-are church. I was like, oh, okay, and everybody was dressed down. And then this one woman came in, and she had like a big hat on, and she had like a white suit and probably some mints in her purse or something like that. <laughs> and, um, and like everybody started talking about her. And I was like, oh, you don't mean come-as-you-are, you mean come-be-like-us. Because... Dress down is now the new legalism. You see, it's part of who we are. It's, it's part of our DNA. We, we need something to feel better about ourselves, to create a ladder above someone else, to create a caste system. Gandhi walked into a church one time because of the caste system in Hinduism. And he said he wanted to be in a church and understand Jesus because of the writings of Jesus. And he said to himself, Um, He walked in to this church and the usher at the back of the door asked him why he was there. And he says, well, I want to learn of this Jesus. He says, they said, no, you need to sit in the back. Don't go all the way up to the front because we'd rather you in the back because you probably need to worship with your Hindu family. Gandhi walked out and wrote, why join Christians when they have a caste system just like Hindus? It's blinding. And so because hierarchy Leverage, power is so core to the way we operate with people. Paul felt he needed to remind the church of who they were. So here's what Paul said to them. To cut the cord of leverage, to break the yoke of hierarchy, 
to eliminate elitism in the church and to produce love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from, human, from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. <laughs> Paul started this church in AD 50. When he started the church, he saw people come to know the Lord. Paul would have a letter written and this letter would be read in front of the church. And what Paul was saying was, I started this church and I remember how all y'all were. Oh, yeah, I remember you. Mm -hmm. You weren't wise. No, you weren't. No, you, you, yeah, yeah, your mama don't even like you no more. Yep, I remember you. I remember all y'all. And I remember your situation. And it's very important that we get reminded in this way, jarred in this way. I, I promise you, as the pastor of this church over four years now, I've literally sat down with people and, and you know, I'll sit down with somebody and be like, man, I can't believe she does that. And I'm like, you used to do it two years ago. Don't get it twisted. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul is speaking directly to them. Y'all aren't all that. That's basically, that's the James T. Roberson hood, Park Slope, uh, bougie, but kind of like not version. So this is what he's saying. Consider your calling, right? So this word calling in the Greek, it's an interesting word. In the Greek, it gives this imagery of an invitation, but it's an invitation by someone who is superior, someone you can't deny. Like if your mom says, I need you here, you're like, I gotta go, I gotta move on this, right? Theologically, they use this imagery of calling have to have two tones. There is a general call and an effectual call. The general call is everybody should come to know the Lord. God wants all men to come into a relationship with God. That's a general call. But the effectual call is the drawing effect God is having on someone. In other words, that moment you could not deny God anymore. When you couldn't keep doing the things you were doing, when you finally got serious about Jesus, that's the call. He says, consider your call. And the reason why he says, consider your call, and you weren't wise, and you weren't noble, or you weren't influential, he says, because the reality is, is that most of us, when we come to Christ or get serious about Christ, we came in the midst of a crisis. I mean, y'all, I just, I just feel interested in the Lord. I do been reading about Jesus, and I feel like I want to lay my life down. Not many of us did that. The reality is we were broken. We were confused. We needed someone, and we came in here broken in a need for God to bless us. And that's who we are. That's what we were. And so he says, consider your call. So that is the calling on our lives to know Jesus, that's what was happening on earth. But the eternal side, he says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world. So that is 
the temporal side is God drawing you and that's what you saw on earth and you finally started to get serious about God. But there was something that was happening in heaven earlier than that. And that is God choosing. God choosing people to love him. God choosing people to worship him. And God, the Bible says in Ephesians, God chose us before the foundation of the world. That means that God chose us before we could do right or wrong, before we could do good or bad, before we could look good or bad. God chose us. And it's a pretty, pretty simple idea. God just decided to love. And he chose some people to love. Um, when Natasha and I first had our um, faith, our oldest, we had been trying to have a baby for about seven years, about seven or eight years, we were trying to have a baby. And finally, you know, Tarsha gets pregnant, we're excited, and then we get the sonogram. And then when we got the sonogram, I was wilding out. I was so excited. I posted it up everywhere I could post it, right? I had it in my car. I literally had it on the dashboard of my car, this little sonogram, right? So there's this little ghostly, stickly-looking figure on my car. And I'm going around like, you see my baby? You see my baby? That's my baby. She like, oh, I know she got a big head like me, but she going to be cute. I promise you. I think. I hope, right? Like, this is my child, right? I'm walking around with this. And if we're honest, sonograms aren't cute. There's nothing beautiful about a sonogram. It's like this, you can almost see through, you see their bones. There's nothing cute about looking at Casper the ghost and calling him cute, right? There's nothing cute about that. But this is the thing. Before my daughter Faith was born, I loved her already. I was already saying how proud I was of her, how, 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 how in love I was with her before she had done good or bad. That's my child. And God uses this word choose, and the theologians take a lot of time to unpack the depth and the breadth of this meaning. And sometimes we get intimidated to see this word choose, but instead of it intimidating us, it should humble us and see what God has done. God is a chooser, it's part of his personality. And God, in selecting and choosing, he tells <clears throat> the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord has his, had his heart set on you and chose you not because you were numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. God just chose to love you. And it wasn't because you were bigger than the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Hittites, or the Amalekites. I just chose to love the Israelites, and you were the worst. It's like, we were the biggest. No, you were the worst. We were the most equipped. No, y'all were jacked up. Like, you were the worst. And I chose to love your little faction, your little group. It wasn't because you were skilled. It's because I was in love with you. Now, um... We're going to get a little theological here for a second for my, you know, people that need that, praise God. So, you know what I'm saying? But it, the, the Presbyterians basically, they, they use this imagery of God choosing. Um, and and on, on one side, they say there's this, uh, they call it the prescient view, this idea of preceding, right? And this imagery is that God, in his foreknowledge, knew 
that you would repent, you would turn to him. God being God knew all possibilities and all opportunities. He knew that you would one day turn to him. So in, in light of that, you turn to him so God chose you. That's the belief. In his foreknowledge, God chose you. But then there's the Augustinian view. The Augustinian view would say, God from all eternity predestines people to be saved and he predestines people to believe. And no one would ever believe if God didn't open up their hearts. That's the Augustinian view. Now you say, well, which, which one? Well, the first view kind of says, you got to do something. You know what I'm saying? Like, so you, there's something you had to do to choose God because, you know, it just, it just can't be all God, right? You got to get a little bit of the credit. You got to, you know, God knew you was going to be good, so, right? But then in John 15, he clarifies this. John 15, <laughs> Jesus says, yeah, let me, let's get real deep. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Whoop, there it is, right? You don't have to search anymore. I appointed you to go and bear fruit that you should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You did not choose me. How did we get together? It wasn't you. I was chasing you down. You remember that night I chased you down? You remember that time? Remember you came to church the next day? That was all me. Yeah, yeah. If God is working, God is working in you to will and work for his good pleasure, it was all me. Like the fact that you desired me was me. And so God is saying, I deserve the credit for your affection for me. Even you being aroused to love me, even you being aroused to worship me, that's me in you, not you thinking of me. And as they tell the couple, as you tell the story, God's nudging you like, don't lie. Don't lie. All me. And so, church, here's what is so important for us to become more loving people. He goes on in 1 Corinthians, he says, yes, God chooses. But here's the, there's a type of person God apparently chooses. He chooses weak, foolish, despised. And when you look through, and he says he does it so that those that are wise and those that are strong would look and only give credit to God because it couldn't have been you. And sometimes we edit the scriptures to make people look omnicompetent, to look like they were all strong all the time. You know, Moses was a great guy. I'm glad he parted the sea. And, and that was amazing what he did. But he killed somebody. Don't forget, don't, when you're reading that, don't, go back, look at the dude he killed and covered up in the sand and then ran off to Midian. Don't forget that part. Don't run past that. And after 40 years of being in the wilderness, Moses, who it says in Acts, he was eloquent. By the time you get to him in, in Exodus, the brother has a speech impediment. Moses, he says, I've never been eloquent, neither in my past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And God was like, I want to use you. I want to use you with your lack of eloquence, with your inability to communicate. I want to use you. Because you, when you can't communicate, I will, and people will think of me, not you. When you think of Jonah, Jonah was a bigot. Okay? Don't run past that. 
When you look in the book of Jonah, he did not like the Ninevites. He was like totally set against the Ninevites. I don't like them. I don't want them to come to the Lord. Those are the bad guys. And he begrudgingly had to, God had to get a fish to capture him so he would tell this group of people to repent. And in so doing, after, this is after, this is after revival, people come to know the Lord. Who says this? Jonah says this. You got to be a bigot to say this. Jonah says, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was in my own country? That's what I felt. That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I want to die because I didn't want them to live. And God used him in the midst of his bigotry, in the midst of his hatred. David wasn't just an adulterer, don't run past this. David set up Bathsheba's husband to get killed. So David set up and coordinated a situation where her husband would have to go out on the front line of a battle and get killed so it would set her up to be free and all of a sudden he could get her. I mean, this is like an episode of Power, it's crazy. He's like, he's like yeah, I set all this up because I wanna be with her. And then it says here, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After, so after the time of mourning, David's like, your wife is, your husband's dead, baby. Well, come on over to my house. She became his wife and he bore him a son. And it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And yet the scriptures tell us he was a man after God's own heart. Noah, <laughs> Noah, Noah builds this ark and it's pretty awesome and that's amazing, and I know in children's church, we're gonna put an ark up there and we're gonna have the felt board. It's gonna have all this incredible stuff, but don't miss this part. Uh, Genesis 9, 20, 21. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, uncovered himself inside the tent. Praise the Lord. That's Noah. Uh, Noah is your uncle that's like, hey, I've been in this boat with these people. It's like, well, Noah, you know, he just had the vineyard. Noah got lit because he was tired of being in a boat with all those animals animals and all those people. Come on now. Don't sanitize it. It's okay. People are weak and messed up. Uncovered himself. Y'all, y'all, you can look in the Hebrew. That's naked. So this is what I'm saying. Elijah, I talked about this last night. Elijah, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, he said, I've had enough. Now, Elijah had seen fire come down from heaven. He believed God was real. God is amazing. God can do anything. I trust the Lord. I'll fight any prophet. I believe God will do anything. Then, after things don't look so good, Elijah says, I've had enough. Can't stand you, Lord. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he laid down, slept under the broom tree, got some Rocky Road ice cream, looked at Netflix and said, I can't take this anymore. I don't like you no more, God. Right? And Elijah was depressed. And it says Jesus, when people heard that he was from Nazareth, they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isaiah would say that he was a servant where there was nothing, there was really no reason to, to gaze at him. He was just a carpenter. He was just a regular guy in that broad sense. 
And when you look at all these texts and you look at all these people that God chose to do miraculous things through, there is this tendency in us to only look at some parts of who they are and what they've done. And maybe we do that because we do that with ourselves. That we only want to cover, we want to cover all those weak parts. And we don't want to acknowledge or expose the fact that we are more inconsistent than people actually know. And God, in his mercy, exposed these men so that we would be blessed. And that we would learn what life is really like following God. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 29, it tells us the whole point. It tells us the whole point. God chose who he chose because he had an end in mind. There was something he was trying to produce, something he wanted to see out of his people, and something he did not want to see. What he didn't want to see was... It says, so that no one may boast in his presence. That when you look in Revelation, when it says they're casting down their crowns and they're worshiping God profusely and they're giving God all the credit, all the glory, all the worship, that when we are before God, God is not sharing his glory. He's not saying at the end of your life when they roll up the credits that there should be a bunch of people on there including me. It's all me. I did it all, and I deserve all the credit, all the glory, and God will not share his glory. Only God. And he is choosing a people that will be so amazed that God would love them, so blown away that God would choose them, so amazed that God would look on them at their worst that they would do nothing but praise him and give him glory and worship him. And so God chooses the weak things of this world. God chooses the foolish things of this world. The lowly things of this world. Who's that? That's us. And so how could we ever create a ladder in here? How could we ever create a ladder out there? He chose us. He blessed us. When no one saw value in us, he saw value and worth. And he gave us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be showered in the praise of God and we bless God. You know, one of the, um, one of the greatest challenges as a pastor is when I see long-running tension in a church. And moreover, when I see people who are unwilling to be reconciled or people who are staying in a faction, and it is always because of one thing, pride. And that's not just for a church, that's in a home. I remember the first... Our first argument, boy, that was, whoo, that was something, that should have been televised, praise God. That was dramatic. And at the time, we were in a townhouse, and my wife was upset, 
She says, well, I'm going to bed. And I was like, well, go to bed. Praise God. She walked upstairs, and I was like, go upstairs. She's like, I'm going to be upstairs. And I remember, I remember I looked up those steps, and those steps look like a thousand steps because I knew I, when I go up there, we're going to have to have a conversation, and I didn't want it. I wanted her to just stay up there, and I wanted to, and I'm going to tell you, when I walked up those steps, it felt like a thousand miles. Everyone's just, oh my God, I got to have this conversation. And there was something inside of me. There was something inside of me I was wrestling as we were talking through, and you know, you're compromising, you're saying you're sorry, and what it was, was I was dying to self. And God was breaking me, and God was whittling down my pride. And you cannot have benevolent love and radical love when you are steeped in pride as a person. Those factions, those divisions, that hierarchy, that leverage comes from how you see yourself. And God was trying to get them, shake them in how they saw themselves. And he says, think about how we got together. You aren't all that. And if you are all that, it's because of me. And then it says in, <laughs> it says in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that, no, so that you may proclaim praise of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the whole point. God set it up so that you would be so blown away that God would love you, that you would offer praise to him and glory and worship and enjoy God forever. You know, I just love the fact that we had that worship night. You know, we got the chairs out of here and people were running around and I saw people moving in ways. I was like, man, we, we look like a club for Jesus and it was great. And I told the girl, I was like, stop twerking, not, not here. No, I'm kidding, no, none of that happened. <laughs> but it was great, it was awesome. And I just think, you were made to praise God. God, God chose us so that we would be people who praise him. Praise him. And we don't want to force you. But it's because you know you've gotten something, that you give something. My dad, years ago, we moved to uh, North Carolina from, uh, from Texas. And when we moved there, uh, we were broke. We were the epitome of broke and no money. And um, I ended up getting a job, but I wasn't making enough. And so we, I had to pay a light bill, a couple other bills. It was like $500. And I was like, Dad, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. Good looking out. Um, but what I didn't realize was I was a, a full scholarship athlete, played football. My wife was, wasn't. She was an athlete, but she didn't have a scholarship. So when we got married, when you know how the Bible says, to whom God brought us together, well, he also brought together our debt, praise the Lord. And I had about, about $1,000 in debt. My wife had a lot more. It was like $50,000 altogether from school and whatnot. And I thought to myself, when my dad paid that $500, what if he had paid the $50,000? Like, wouldn't that have been awesome? Because 
I didn't know how we were going to get out. Now, praise God, we're out of debt. Oh, shout out, shout out. We're out of debt, praise God. But at the time, 15 years ago, that 50000 might have been $500,000. I was like, I don't know how we are ever going to pay this off paying $25.99 every month. We are never getting out of this. Debt for life, that's us. And imagine if my dad, instead of paying the $500, paid $50,000. And I look at him, I go, appreciate that. Good look it out. If I do that, it's because I'm not aware of what was paid for for me and the depths of what God did. And here's what I know. The God of heaven and earth paid a debt we could not pay. And because he paid a debt we could not pay, he is worth praise. Praise of our entire lives. And as you seek to look and praise God, the people will look and they will say, what is it about those people? We'll say, God, God changed our lives. God showered us. And he did something we could not do on our own. And we offer that to the world. A love we could not get on our own, we offer that to the world. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Gracious God, we thank you. And we praise you, God. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the way that you tonight have reminded us, you remind us, God, it wasn't our strength. It wasn't our strength. And so, God, we, we thank you, God, for the, the beauty of your sacrifice. And we want to offer all praise to you, God. We lay our lives down before you, God. And tonight, we want to offer that praise to the world, that we have been loved radically. And we want to offer that and have the whole world see that in the midst, at our worst, God loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Oh, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he acknowledged that this bread was a symbol of his body being broken for them. Also on that night, he took a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. And the scripture says, as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are acknowledging and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And tonight, we pray that you would enjoy the power of God, enjoy the presence of God in your life, and do business with God, do business with him vertically and where you're at with him. Do business with God horizontally yeah, yeah, yeah. with the relationships that you have. Do business with God. And there are some that may not be in a confident relationship with Jesus tonight. And we'd ask that you would go to the back and be prayed over. And that tonight you could tell the person that you just wanna begin a journey with Jesus. And so we acknowledge tonight, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, embrace his love, enjoy his love, and we have it in a symbolic format through communion. If we'll have the elements come, you'll take the communion in your own time, you'll come down these aisles and go out the outer aisles, down these aisles and out the outer aisles. For the rest of us, maybe you just need to be prayed over. Maybe there's something you walked in here heavy on your heart. Or maybe you were reminded of how you need to always work towards humility and not create any kind of ladder. Maybe you notice that in yourself. The prayer team is back there waiting for you just to pray over you and pray with you. You'll take the communion in your own time. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we bless these elements. We ask that you would use them to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen? Amen, come at your own time.